I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two guests this week, two excellent segments. First up, Chad Finn for some sports media talk and we get into uh, so many things. Al Michaels discussing ESPN's story on Daniel Snyder, acquiring dirt on owners during Amazon's Bears Commanders broadcast, where we, uh, what we're thinking about in terms of the NBA uh, starting up and sort of where broadcasting is and and where viewership might be in that league and what she'll be interested in. We get into Draymond Green. And will he be, will his broadcasting career be impacted at all or hurt by punching Jordan Poole? Talked about Stephen A. Smith appearing on some political shows and will that open the door up for other ESPNers? Get into Fox's decision not to talk about anything in Qatar other than what is on the pitch and a number of other topics. He is followed by Meredith Shiner who has a new podcast exploring the intersection of sports and American Jewish culture. Uh, Meredith Shiner is, uh, I think as she said, maybe a reformed national political reporter, but uh, uh, had many, many bed, had many, many bylines um, in politics and obviously worked at the, the highest levels of Washington. She's now a freelance writer, communication strategist, and a lecturer in public policy. But for these purposes, she's the host of The Franchise, which is a limited series podcast from Tablet Studios exploring the intersection of sports and American Jewish culture. And we get into the origin of the podcast and what she's hoping with that. I'm always interested uh, in people who um, have something new uh, Jason Romano, a longtime ESPN producer, I have great respect for. He um, came up with a podcast on the intersection of faith and sports. Uh, a lot of people who are um, who believe in Christ, and that podcast is it's called Sports Spectrum. It's been massive, and it's gotten so much uh, so much uh, critical praise. And he has a lot of great guests. So uh, Meredith Shiner, I haven't again. I feel like she has something that's sort of interesting and unique in the marketplace, and. And that's why I wanted to have her on. So some sports media conversation with Chad Finn to start, followed by Meredith Shiner on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, we bring in Chad Finn of the Boston Globe, who has been on this podcast, as you know, many times. And Chad, here's where I want to start. we got a number of things to talk about today. Um, Al Michaels discussed ESPN's story on Daniel Snyder, and I absolutely highly recommend the story that, uh, you know, uh, Don Van Natta uh, and company did on um, Dan Snyder acquiring dirt on NFL owners. And so Al Michaels mentions this, Chad, during Amazon's coverage of the Bears' commander's broadcast. And while, yes, it was only 60 seconds or so, I think I timed it, it might have been 62 exactly, and yes, Kirk Herbstreet did not weigh in or say anything, and yes, Al Michaels is obviously very tight with other owners. I believe the New York Post reported that he appeared at uh, Robert Kraft's wedding. You, the Boston Globe may know this as well. Um, it's still significant to me. It was still significant because it happened during a game broadcast. That I've, you know, we've talked about this before. That always, that is something that never happens. Owners are never criticized on game broadcasts. This is where it could actually have meaning because you're dealing with twenty. 10, 15, 25 million people as opposed to a studio program with a couple million. And so I thought it was pretty significant, even if it was short and even if it was quick. How did you see that? And what do you sort of think about that writ large? Well, it gave me a flashback, Rich. Um, back in the 2014 playoffs, uh, it was a, uh, when all the deflate case stuff was going on with the Patriots and uh, they were playing a uh, playoff game against the Ravens and a uh, divisional round game and sort of out of nowhere, they show Roger Goodell in the stands and uh, you'll remember this. Michael starts um, it, it clearly reading um, something about uh, how essentially 
the Mueller investigation into how he handled the Ray Rice controversy uh, showed that Goodell did nothing wrong. And then Collinsworth chimed in with a man. He's a man of integrity or something. The word integrity was used. And that was the first time I really ever thought of Al Michaels as somebody who would say the league's piece for them uh, when necessary. So when this happened the other night, uh, it just gave me an immediate flashback to that moment eight years ago when um, just it, it came out of left field, but it was obviously very well coordinated to happen when Goodell's on camera sitting in the stands pretending to be a man of the people with his wife. So didn't surprise me at all. Uh, it doesn't take away from how much I like and respect Al as a broadcaster. I'd still rather listen to him than anyone else calling an NFL game. But uh, um, there was no uh, no shock that he he spoke out on what the a message the league would like to get out there. I think you've hit on it. First of all, let me give the reporters specific credit. Don Van Natta Jr., Seth Wickersham, Tisha Thompson. Um, they were the writers on this. Um, multiple editors at ESPN were uh, a big part of this. John Kime as well uh, added pr- additional reporting. This is ballsy reporting because it's done by a league rights holder partner. Now, let's be realistic. Dan Snyder's hated. I think he's very clearly hated by other owners. And so Jimmy Pitaro is not going to get a call from the NFL saying, hey, you know, why are your people doing this? He's probably going to get a bottle of wine, to be honest. Uh, he's just watching the Yankees know. games right now. Yeah, that's true, from the other owners. But <laughs> I'm with you, Chad. Again, like I, I have to be honest. I think of most of the NFL game broadcasters as just apparatuses of the league. They all know the owners, right? They're all former players or just part of this establishment. They're in maybe co-opted is like a little too strong a word, but but they're I I think of them almost as league employees, honestly. And in many ways, I don't think of them as independent voices. To be blunt, I mean, Costas was certainly different, and you know, look what happened. Um, you know, he walked away from it. So I think it's significant. And I agree with you. I remember when Michaels and Collinsworth has done that. And I, I still think of Collinsworth as a, as a league guy, but you know, I t- Costas was on this podcast last week. And one of the things that he said that I thought was really, really interesting. And he was almost, I think really sort of pointing in the direction of Al, who's a very good friend of his saying like, the reality is like, you can do this. If you have enough standing and enough juice, you could present what the facts are. And be critical in a, you know, in a, in a meaningful and perhaps even short way. And you're not going to get kicked off the air and the public's going to respect you. And his argument was like NBC did this at the Olympics, right? Like mm-hmm. Tariko and others, they actually discussed human rights abuses in China. Sure. And the Chinese did not kick them out of the country. You know what I mean? Like they, <laughs> they continued on with the Olympics. So I don't know. I thought, I mean, we'll see. I don't expect anything else from this, quite frankly. I don't expect anybody else when the commanders are on to do this. But I thought it was a significant moment because I'm certainly one who for years has just been like, if you really ever want like change, it has to happen during a game broadcast. Because all the shoulder programming and all the studio shows, it's just, at the end of the day, don't you agree, Chad? It's just noise. It's just like one big giant like noise in a bubble and sometimes some things break out it's of a that giant bubble. Backslide. Yeah. But uh, but generally speaking, it's like it's sort of just, you know, it's it all goes into the bubble for that week and then the next week are the new storylines when it comes to pregame shows. So I don't know. I thought it was significant. I really did. Yeah, you know, you reminded me of something actually. Um uh mentioning how they're all league partners and they're all intertwined in a way and how um sort of clout that you have as a particular broadcast network can affect how the league views you. I mean, it reminded me of Stephanie Drulli saying, uh, I believe it was the introductory conference call they had with Buck and Aikman, where she acknowledged that the, uh, they get better games on Monday night now because of who their broadcast team is. And it just all sort of plays into that whole thing where, um, you know, the league is listening to everything. They're having the, uh, they're saying everything. And uh, if you are going to be uh, especially critical of the league beyond the boundaries that are imaginary boundaries or invisible boundaries that they set, then there's probably going to be consequences for that. And it's what, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, getting a lesser game or, or um, uh, you know, getting a, the scolding from the league in some certain way, but uh, there are many ways for the NFL to, to make their partners uh, recognize that, that this is not a two-way relationship. In the 
House of Dragons, Game of Thrones, uh, Lexicon, bend the knee. Basically, the NFL can make you bend the knee. And also, uh, so the, so people who are listening know this, the NFL approves all these announcers. Like, yeah, ESPN makes the hire, but there's no way an announcer is getting on their airwaves unless it's essentially de facto approved by the league. Whether that's, you know, sort of informally or not, that's the deal. Uh, one quick thing on Amazon, Chad, just because this came in, um, actually, as we're taping this today, the horrible Commanders-Bears game. Can I guess? Averaged it. Yeah, averaged uh, for Nielsen eight point eight million, um, so that's I think their low. Yeah. So far, and you know, with Amazon's proprietary first uh, party management, I like to call the uh, the law firm of Alana Russo, Harrison Raboy, Amy Palchik, and Tim Buckman. I mean, quite a white shoe firm you got going on there. Um, <laughs> they have uh, they have um, ten point five million. Yeah, when you include uh, you know Twitch and everything else. So again, like that eight point eight million is obviously not a great number, but still for such a dog game, it's probably not that bad. Um, and again, I'll Amazon has a good, yeah, Amazon has a good story to tell. Again, they're they've done very very well in um, younger viewership. The numbers I think have done better than I think a lot of people expected, and you know. Yeah, we see their executives crowing all over the place on uh, on their plans, and you know they got a good story to tell. So you throw your executives uh, out there. Um, so that's sort of for Amazon. Well, you know the the buzz, the buzz on that game though on that day was weird, um, where people were talking more about in the build up to that game. We're talking more about how uh, this game stinks. Why are people going to watch it? And then they watched it. Whereas while it's- was it was a tight game at the end though, right? If yeah. I remember right. Yeah, it was right. So, and people always watch the NFL. Twelve to seven or something like that. Or? Yeah, if it's tight. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we haven't gotten it. This will be out by the time the number will be out by the time you guys are listening to this. That Bills Chiefs game number is going to be crazy. Oh my god, lived up to billing, theme. didn't it? Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal ending. Obviously, I you know I have fondness for Buffalo. I lived there a long time. I do want the Bills to do well just because I love the city of Buffalo and know how important it is. Like I'm not going to hide that. Um, so that was. Uh, it was a great game. I actually thought Nance and Roma were, were, were had a terrific game. Yeah. The best game I think they've had this year. Um, yeah, that was great, so tough to bottom. Yeah, really good broadcast. All right, the NBA um, starts this week. And, um, you know, I, I, like viewership is always an interesting story. The league has a lot of great young stars. LeBron um, is 50 or 55 games away, depending on what his average is from breaking uh, Kareem's all-time record. League's got a lot of good stories to tell. I'm real curious to see how the, you know, sort of the viewing public, especially early on, um, is into these games and whether they'll be into these games. Even the controversy part of this, you know, with the Celtics in your neck of the woods, I think people are going to be interested in the Celtics nationally just because they want to see how they're going to do. Still a favorite in Vegas in most places. Sometimes. Not surprising. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. Um, you know, they, they have a 34-year-old head coach who's uh, – uh, head coaching experiences NBA summer league and uh, division two school. So um, the talent is certainly there, but uh, they're compelling because they had a coach who got through to them last year in a way that I've never seen before covering any team where uh, you have these guys with bad habits who just won't break the bad habit, won't break the bad habit. Coach keeps hammering them and he gets through and things change and they, you know, two wins from winning the NBA title. Now they have a, uh, a, a younger coach who probably doesn't have the gravitas to do that. So uh, a lot of compelling angles to the Celtics, but I, I, I think the golden state still has to be the biggest draw and really the favorite, right? Yeah, for sure. The biggest draw. And obviously given Draymond's uh, punch of Jordan pool, um, you know, a, a, a horrific uh, uh, images there. Um that that the controversy part of that, I think, will probably draw some people to watch the Warriors. In addition to the large viewership that they get, I think people are going to be curious to see how the Warriors, um, you know, can sort of figure out the chemistry part of that. Uh, Pool just resigned to a big deal. I think Andrew Wiggins did too. That's a real yeah. good team because they're they're defending champions and they got a lot of good young players who should take a who should take a jump. I will say as we're taping this. Um, Today, Chad, on uh, Monday, you guys will be able to get this on October 18th. The Inside the NBA crew has re-upped Warner Brothers Discovery Sports, re-ups all four of them. The contracts extend beyond the current deal that Warner Brothers and ESPN have with the NBA, which 
currently ends after the 24-25 season. So the greatest sports show in history, sports studio show in history, inside the NBA, we will be getting this now um, for many, many years to come, presuming that the NBA goes back with Warner Brothers Discovery, and I think they will, at least in some form. Mm-hmm. So, uh, man, what a success story. I think they're in year 33, and uh, they're still relevant, which is incredible to me. I mean, think about that. A studio show, that long-running, still relevant in 2022. Is there any other one that you watch uh, habitually after a game just to hear what they have to say? Because that's the only one none, for me. None. And across any sport. None. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I will watch them because it's our job in right. some ways to watch them. There is no other I consider destination television. Yeah, I'd do it anyway. Um, I'm just grateful Barkley didn't go to live golf. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 yeah. imagine if he had left um, – well, he's the I mean, he's the fulcrum of that entire show as good as the other guys are and as good as Ernie yeah, is as host. Yeah, I, it, I, I'm just going to be blunt. It would have changed my opinion of him. Um, I can't. Yeah, me too. Him. I mean, if you're I think if you're just an American, I don't know how you can't be incredibly. I don't know if insulted is the right word, but disgusted by OPEC playing games with gas prices, not just for the Americans, but for Europe as well. So yeah, I, I can't separate. I'm just going to be, yeah, there are things we do separate and I get it. Like, you know, I'll watch the Olympics, even though, you know, they've been in horrible places and I'll watch the world cup, even though they've been in horrible places, you got to make these individual decisions, but that I, I really love Barkley. I love him as a personality. I've had many interviews with him. I've enjoyed every single one of them. It w- I would have thought of him differently after that. I just have to be honest with the audience. Me too. And it's really interesting because he's one of those uh, very rare people who can get away with saying and doing things that would, uh, I don't know, they necessarily get other people canceled, but they, they might have them on the verge of cancellation. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, because he's such a beloved figure, because he's a guy who generally speaks truth to power and because he's so damn funny, um, he, he's allowed to maybe say a little bit more and do a little bit more that, uh, uh, than other people would be. But uh, this would have been the tipping point, I think, for a lot of people. So it was a relief that he didn't go. Yeah, he listen, he has Jordan rules. I mean, let's be honest. Ironic, because he's not talking to Michael anymore. He's a longtime buddy. But uh, but yeah, the rules are different for Charles at Warner Brothers Discovery. And, you know, you can you can have a problem with that. I respect that. But, you know, Kirk Herbstreet, Stephen A. Smith, Adam Schefter, the rules are different for those guys at ESPN. The rules are probably different for Ken Rosenthal at The Athletic. I mean, that's than me. Like that's sort of just unfortunate, not unfortunate, but that's just a part. They of, weren't uh, at the MLB network. <laughs> yeah, great As point. Found out. It's all about, it's all, <laughs> it's all about who, it, again, bend the, the, bend the knee. I mean, it's all about who's in, uh, who's on the iron throne. And Rob Manfred <laughs> is, is on the iron throne there. Um, I wrote about this. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, uh, you know, Stephen A. Smith to promote his podcast, um, which his podcast that runs on cadence 13, uh, and his podcast company, and obviously, again, just for full disclosure, I think no one should not know this. My podcast, Independent Athletic, that you're listening to right now, is a Cadence 13 podcast. So Stephen A, part of that same podcast network, um, he's been appearing on political shows, yeah, uh, Chad, to promote this. He's been on Hannity. I think he's been on a couple other Fox News shows. He's also one who's been on many political shows over the course of his career. It's something he's interested in, and he's done it. Um, I asked ESPN about it because I was like, does this signal a change for you guys? Like, can anybody go on Fox News or Sirius POTUS or MSNBC? Like, you know, what does this mean? And their answer basically was that Stephen A. showed an interest in this. He has this podcast. We're allowing him to do this. The requests that we get for our other talent will be decided on a, you know, individual basis. And please note that most of these requests are sports related. Yeah, you know. From the Krulowitz PR school, I, I, it's what I expected. But it is interesting, and it does go back to the fact that like there are different rules, right, for different talent. And where Stephen A could do this, uh, you know, I don't know. Can you uh, you think uh, you think Nicole Briscoe and Booger <laughs> McFarland are get are getting are allowed to go on where they want? I doubt it. You know. Yeah, you know who had a different set of rules? Funny is there was Gruden. It's a good thing he didn't do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He w- he would. Now he would have. I think basically, you know, if you want to play this sort of parlor game, it's probably like oh, I don't. I've just do have top man. Maybe ten people at ESPN who might have the kind of the Jordan rules, like Stephen A. Herb Street, Wojnarowski, uh, Schefter, uh, Aikman, 
Buck. I was going to say, yeah, those. I don't know, Fowler, Fowler, get to that level. I'm trying to think, you know. Yeah, I think so. Maybe right, right. You got to think of like Berman still or no, mm-hmm. or at this point doesn't really matter. Right? Uh, he's got emeritus rules, or however you say that word. Yeah, yeah, emeritus, right? Yeah, I mean, again, I'd, I'd have to have the, uh, I'd have to have the, the list of uh, P- Feinbaum. Given what he's bringing in for the on the radio side, does he have the Jordan rules? Nah, no, too niche. Probably too yeah. niche, right? That's uh, coastal elites. We'll say that. Yeah, coastal or <laughs> Canada elite. Uh, what about uh, Van Gundy? I'm trying to think of the, just I'm just going to different properties or Breen. No, uh, I don't think so yeah. either. I don't know. Uh, maybe Van Gundy. The Van Gundy uh, brothers, depending on where his contract is. They do. That's another. what I'm saying. Like he. He might have a little, and and no one in hockey, right? No one in hockey has those kind of has that weight. Who's their most prominent hockey person there? Steve Levy, Bucciaros, McDonough. Yeah, none of those yes. guys. I don't think any of those guys get Jordan rules. Um, so there you go. So we've sort of gone through the list and gives you. And we may, if we forgot somebody, I apologize. But that sort of gives you the sense of, uh, um, you know, sort of who's I think allowed to do stuff and who doesn't. And and the reality is, like you know, you you have to make a decision with your agent, like you know. If you're asking for to keep going on these shows, you're kind of challenging ESPN management, who really wants you to stay sort of neutral on everything except sports. Um, so, um, so I get it, but I don't know I found that um, I found that particularly interesting. All right, a couple more here. Um, my old colleague Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated, who's uh, traveled to Qatar and um, is, uh, and will be there for the World Cup for his Substack. I give him so much credit for. Uh, doing this on his own. Yeah. He was very hard on Fox, Chad. Uh, their decision not to discuss any issues um, in Qatar during the World Cup coverage. Migrant workers, LGBTQ concerns, human rights stuff. Fox has basically said, we're not doing anything other than what happens on the pitch. It's the exact same thing they did with Russia in 2018. I mean, I, you know, I've always thought that, you know, a a, a <laughs> that like we shouldn't necessarily play by whatever the Russians rule is, but like I don't know. I guess I'm call me naive. How do you feel about this? They're not going to do it. They're not even going to go to the places that NBC did. They're certainly not going to go where ESPN did when they did their coverage in South Africa. Um, I don't know. It's it's weak. I, I just to me, can't you just do the minimal? Do you got to punt on everything? I get it. You're not 60 minutes, but can you at least not like? I don't know, make it, make it a propaganda exercise for the country? You know, as a general rule, Fox is pretty good at ignoring reality uh, across a lot of different things. Uh, so it doesn't really surprise me. I'm, I'm curious whether their approach to this, and it's not new, as you mentioned, but if their approach to this begins to color the way other networks handle it down the road, whether um, NBC and ESPN look at it, uh, you know, when they cover an event in a controversial area, and decide, you know what, Fox didn't do this, so uh, you know we're just gonna sort of join that bandwagon and and uh, not acknowledge the things that are going on here. Um, you know, different different levels of horribleness. Um, uh, whether that becomes a standard, I, I hope not. I don't think it will be. Uh, I feel like with uh, ES NBA uh, NBC in particular that there is a uh, there is a real desire to at least tell. Uh, tell a, a good portion of the truth about what's going on in a place, even when they have business interests there and so much, you know, millions upon millions of dollars at stake. But uh, can't say what, uh, you know, Fox, Fox Sports is doing with this is any surprise at all. Well, I mean, you know, you got to, I think you got to, even if, even if you wanted them to do more, don't you got to tip your hat to NBC? Yeah, absolutely. Like when it came to the Olympics, they had, yeah. they, they brought in two China experts uh, for long conversations before the Olympics started, the opening ceremonies, they absolutely addressed this stuff. They addressed it during the Russian um, figure skating controversy in terms of sort of, you know, should these guys be in the Olympics, et cetera. So, again, like, I, I don't want to say they're not the BBC. Like, don't get me wrong, but like, <laughs> I, I got to tip my hat at least. Like, you know, they at least went there. You know, they at least acknowledged right. that, like, this exists. And that's, I don't think that's asking a lot from Fox, but. Yeah, they're. I think now for me at this point, Chad, I just don't want to see outright propaganda on how great Qatar is. Like, I, I, I'll, you think they'll go down there? I'll unhappily, I don't know. I'll unhappily swallow the fact that they're not going to sort of address this other stuff. But I mean, if you start doing like 
you know, here's a, uh, boy, it's, but this is a beautiful country. You should, you guys should come here and live. I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to guess. Property is affordable. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I hope we don't go down that road. Final couple things. You think Draymond Green, um, the punching Jordan Poole, does that impact his broadcasting career at all? Probably not. Does it change the, yeah, the public's mind? I don't think it changes Warner Brothers Discovery's mind. He's got a contract with them, but does the will the public care? Now, Barkley checked somebody through a plate glass window once, and he's done okay. So <laughs> it was a little bit different time. I mean, we didn't have video of that, but um, no, I, I I don't think it will because uh, he's just uh, such a charismatic figure. The, the Warriors are going to be prominent again, and unless he has some sort of other blow up with a teammate or um, situation like what happened with Durant where he, he called him out on the court and it ended up spurring Durant to leave uh, some drastic thing like that where the more and more things mount against him another fight um, I really don't think it has an imp- impact I, 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 I seriously doubt that uh, um, Turner is really particularly bothered by this at all uh, given that he's probably going to play for a few more years anyway Last one for me is, have you watched uh, any um, early season hockey coverage on ESPN or Warner Brothers Discovery? Yeah, a little bit. Yep. What's your sort of initial takeaways from year two for both? I still think Gretzky's terrible and unprepared, but you like him. I haven't, you know, I haven't really seen much this year, so I don't know if, uh, I, I, I think the thing I liked about him last year was just that he was willing to be one of the guys. Like sort of like self mocking, yeah. yeah. self deprecating. Like it, they, like it, you know, they in many times, especially early, they were sort of trying to overwhelm the viewers by like, "Ooh, Wayne Gretzky's on our set," and he was the one I felt like who's like, "All right, guys, right. like, yeah, You're like you know how it does. You don't have to Wayne Gretzky everything." No, yeah, that that urge is probably uh, pretty strong too to do that when you finally. Get that but you think he's just bland, right? Yeah, That's he my speaks guess. in vagaries. No? Yeah, sometimes they'll do very specific things, or he breaks down something. But for the most part, it's uh, it, it. There aren't a ton of specifics when he's you know when they turn to him to talk uh, about a particular particular team or particular player. And uh, I don't know, just kind of feels like he doesn't have as much information as you'd hope. All right. Well, we'll pay. And have you seen? I have not seen. Uh, I think I saw McDonough call the game. Uh, it was fine, you know. No, no, I don't really have any sort of thoughts either way on ESPN. I've not seen an ESPN studio show yet for hockey. No, this year. no I haven't yeah. either. No, I've been base, okay. baseball, football mode. So as we tape this, the Guardians Yankee series is not over, but it will be by the time you listen to this. I mean, I think let's be honest, Fox is rooting for you know privately rooting for the Yankees there, even though the Guardians have a very very good story with some Cubs appeal. Um. Is the is the national pub, like so like you know Padres Phillies Guardian slash Yankees Astros? If you're Fox, what are you rooting for there? Yankees Phillies, right? Ooh, yeah, I think you have to. Um, Phillies pro- Phillies got the uh, got a little bit, yeah big market bigger market. market. Bryce Harper's probably a bigger known name than anybody the Padres have. Yeah, Machado's great. Soto has yeah. been there. Juan Soto. Um, yeah. terrific player, but, uh, 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 Harper's, you know, he's on SI when he was what, 15 years old, 14 years old. So he's a household name. Is 18, that what it was? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 18, was yeah. that I a Verducci was a story? Or 17. That was a Verducci. Yeah, yeah. He called it. Uh, well, I mean, so like, so it's interesting. Like, do you think, I don't know, are the, so are the guardians, you don't feel like are Cubs light. You don't feel like the, the drought would be, would that be a national story to people or? Yeah, or I think no? so. But, uh, really no name recognition on that team at all other than yeah ramirez is terrific jose ramirez but he's but he's not he's not aaron judge right he's not he's not even juan soto i don't you know in terms of national no he's a top five mvp candidate a couple of times but nothing more than that but you're watching that team right now if you've paid slight attention to the major league baseball season beyond the team that you follow you're not going to know a lot of these guys. You, you may not know Oscar Gonzalez. Nobody knows Will Benson coming off the bench to pinch hit, or uh, that uh, uh, you know Mets fans know Med Rosario because he's a great prospect there. But he kind of fell out of uh, out of sight, out of mind for a long time. So um, a lot of no names. But their their manager beyond Ramirez, Terry Francona is probably their uh, most well known person. He's actually been in Cleveland now longer than he was with the Red Sox when he won a couple of World Series here. Yeah, I, I, I really find the Padres to be a really cool team. Like, I just think they play, they're exciting and fun, but 
I, I got no feel for, you know, whether like, you know, a national audience will sort of go there. Um, I think the I think people are kind of tired of the Astros. I'll be tired of the Dodgers uh, too. I don't to think people honest. are devastated. Oh, yeah, but but you know that Yankees Dodgers would have oh, yeah. been, you know, fifteen twenty million if it if it went to a game six or seven. I mean that's just guaranteed numbers from the from the population. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I don't know how appealing the Dodgers are to once you sort of leave once you leave California. Um, I, I the Phillies are interesting just because like that market is crazy for sports and I think, and it's a big market. So I would expect um, if they can make the world series, I, I would expect that pretty good run to, for Philly, right? To, now. to push, push the national. Yeah. Eagles yeah. have been awesome. Um, Sixers are really loaded. Yeah. Scent race coming up. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I like guys in sweatshirts, but what do I know? All right. Um, <laughs> Chad Finn is the Boston globe writer both in sports media as well as a generalist. Chad, watch out for the Bills, my man. That was a good win yesterday. I think we're going to see some home Picked field. Picked them to win the Super Bowl, man, so uh, I'm all for that. I hear you. All right, is there anything else, Chad, you want to add before I let you get out of here? I always appreciate your time. Uh, you mentioned the Dodgers and Yankees. Did you happen to see the 30 for 30 on the uh, late 70s rivalry between those two teams? No, but I think that would probably be really interesting because those teams. It was the worst one I've ever seen, and I was so looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, is that right? Oh, that's a bummer. Like they showed like the eighty-one Dodgers winning, and I had a picture of Tommy John who was with the Yankees at that point, and um, just it was clips. It was a clip show. It was really frustrating. It should have been a great one. That was right in my wheelhouse. Was uh, Garvey? Uh, um, a little bit. Yeah, all those guys, Dusty Baker. You know, uh, some of the. Yeah, yeah, he's, I love he's the greatest. It's a great quote. And the Yankees, I mean, you know, Reggie's a good interview. If you can get he's him a big part of, of it, yeah, I he mean, was really have, good on uh, it. Actually. Yeah, Nettles. Just trying to think who's like who's sort of you see. Gossage is a good interview when you yeah. get him centered. He'll he's willing to say stuff. Um, yeah, I agree. Those teams were really really interesting, and um, I think it's the, forget about obviously like you know the personal issues away from. Uh, the field. I think Garvey is perennially underrated in terms of Hall he's, of Fame. People thought he was a lock during his career. Analytics have it. Well, I, th- I think those seventies guys yeah. get rooked in the um, given their numbers. They they always get rooked compared to the nineties and two thousands. Like Jim, you know the Jim Rice, um, Garvey, Took that Rice, eight years, uh, yeah. Dave Parker. Yeah, all those guys like were Hall of Famers to me. It's just that the game was different and offensive numbers weren't nearly as prolific as they ultimately became. I think all those, the guys who are not in the Hall of Fame during that era, um, I, I'm a Dale Murphy believer too. Me like, too. I, I always feel yeah. like, I always, uh, you know, like guys like Lou Whitaker. Whitaker's and, my know, cause. That, Trammell, yeah. maybe Trammell's, yeah, maybe Trammell's is, in the Hall yeah. of Fame now. But you know what I'm saying? Like that, that era, I always think those guys yeah. are rooked. And I hope, I hope some of them get in for the, uh, you know, I don't think it's called the Veterans Committee anymore. Whatever, whatever it's called now. Yeah, I think it's going it. to be tough. Um, no, I know. All right, Chad Finn, uh, as always, thank you for your time, and uh, and we'll see you Thanks, much man. sooner. Take care. Month. Thank you, Chad. All right, as I said at the top, Meredith Shiner bios herself as a recovering national political reporter. In her previous writing life, she worked for Politico, Roll Call, and Yahoo News. She's still a freelance writer, so you can see her byline at places like Rolling Stone. Today, she's a communication strategist and lecturer in public policy at the University of Chicago. And for the purposes of this podcast, the host of The Franchise, which is a limited series podcast from Tablet Studios that explores, and the podcast explores the intersection of sports and American Jewish culture, a podcast about sports, Jews, and America. And I am pleased to be joined by Meredith Shiner. Welcome. I'm Welcome. so thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm sorry I have so many jobs. I feel like I made that introduction very difficult for you. Uh, yeah, that but, uh, that took about as long as Costas and Al Michaels. <laughs> I'm tired at this point. Uh, yeah, I'm not nearly as important as either of the people you just mentioned, but I do. I do have a lot of hustles that I'm doing, and I have a toddler at home. So hopefully, everything that I say to you is coherent and properly promotes this show because I'm really excited about it and I'm I'm proud of it and it's a really 
big privilege for me to be able to talk about it with you. Well, you're definitely as important as those guys. And so let's start here because uh, I have a number of questions on this, but mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot of process questions on this podcast, which I yeah. just find interesting. So you look at the marketplace. This is obviously a passion project. You look, yes. also look at the marketplace and you probably see that, okay, this could be unique in the in the market. So how does this podcast come about? How does it go from conception to completion? And I will say, as we're taping this with Meredith, um, today is the grand debut of episode one, Baseball Yom Kippur, and what it means to be a Jewish athlete in America then and now. So congratulations, episode one out. Get that on uh, Stitcher, Apple, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, thank you, and thank you for the promo. So I'm a, I'm a little worried that I'm going to turn off some of your listeners by saying this, but the reason that I actually got this podcast is because I went to Duke. So before I got into political journalism, I know I feel like I have to apologize for it, and Coach K didn't really like me either. It's a whole shit that I do. Um, but the reason I got this podcast is because the team at Tablet Studios was thinking about doing something in sports. And that was just the general assignment. Like, we'd like to do a sports podcast about Jews and sports. And, you know, as you think about the media landscape, for sports, there are a lot of Jewish boys from New York and New Jersey who grew up to be sports writers. And I know this because when I went to Duke, I had a dream of being a journalist. And so I got involved with a student newspaper, the Duke Chronicle, and I was the sports editor of version 103 of the Chronicle. And I had to ask a bunch of Jewish fraternity boys from New York and New Jersey to elect me to be their editor. And I was a huge outlier at the time because I wasn't a guy and I wasn't from New York, I was from Chicago. So in a huge stretch of the imagination, I got elected to be sports editor and I covered, you know, big stories like Duke basketball, Duke lacrosse happened at the time. I know you've had my friend say we're Darby on your show. And there was just a generation of journalists who worked at the paper at the time who got involved in journalism in some way. And so Stephanie Butnick, who is one of the leaders at Tablet Studios, who runs their podcast network, happens to be married to Ben Cohen, who was also a sports editor at the Chronicle um, and is a current journalist at the Wall Street Journal. And the idea and what they were looking for was someone who could take a different and unique look at sports and Jews. And, you know, you sort of touch on this, but it feels like everyone has a podcast. And I think one of the things that they wanted was something that sounded different. And part of what made it sound different and feel different was having a woman host. And so Stephanie asked Ben, like, hey, do you know someone who could host this show? And he said, actually, I do have an idea for you. And so when they reached out to me, I was really excited about this project because there are a lot of things that I don't miss about daily political journalism. And maybe we'll get to that. But one of the things I do miss is, you know, working with people who have sort of creative and new sensibilities and being able to create and to write. And so the idea for the show and the concept for the show was what I had proposed. And then the reporting, booking, writing for the show is sort of the, you know, brainchild of all of these ideas that I've had about what sports should be, how it should be covered how it sort of provides this lens for us to view American society. Like to me, like when we talk about college football and amateur amateurism, it's one of the great civil rights issues of our time and it should be covered like that. And one of the reasons I've always respected your work is that it accepts and acknowledges that sports is a business and it can bring all of these different storylines into the fold and it doesn't have to be balls and strikes or a box score. And that's sort of the like, origin story of how I got here, but also the way that I think about sports and conceive about sports and what is reflected ultimately in the show. So episode one, um, you're sort of using Sandy Colfax as a jumping off point Mm -hmm. in many ways um, in terms of how to think about this stuff, both historically and modern day. I actually have a pretty cool thing, I thought, where you took it from Colfax to the the 2021 World Series where uh, Max Fried pitched a ball to Alex Bregman. and the play was made by Jock Peterson. So there's yeah. three Jewish athletes all involved in the 2021 World Series. And it really it wasn't a story. It was in, in many ways was an afterthought that you picked up on. So that was a pretty cool way, I think, for you to link Koufax to modern day. So you start with Koufax. Obviously, I think that's generally a pretty good place to start. He's the most famous Jewish athlete of all time. His decision not to play in Yom Kippur is one of the most famous 
uh, moments in sports. So when you're thinking about this, Meredith, do you like have six or seven? I don't know how long the run is. Like eight episodes. Six, okay, so eight episodes. Do you have it all themed out? Like, okay, episode one is my intro. I'm bringing Kofax in to sort of do things writ large. And then my next seven episodes are going to cover other things. And maybe you're doing a micro topic as opposed to like something macro. Yeah. So um, a lot of them like uh, are sort of these big macro ideas. I feel like asking big questions and trying to search for answers is a very Jewish approach to taking on stories. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you're right. I started with Sandy Koufax and I mentioned explicitly in the show, this isn't Hank Greenberg erasure, right? This was me choosing Sandy Koufax, not just because of who he was and what he represents and that, you know, he finally got a statue at Dodger Stadium this year, but because 1965 was such a critical time in American history. And, you know, being, you know, decades past the end of World War II and Jews assimilating into America and big cultural changes happening, one of the reasons why Sandy Koufax was so singular was not just because he was the greatest of all time, which he is among the greatest pitchers of all time, but because of the timing of when he made the decision to sit on Yom Kippur and what it meant for Jews in America to see someone who was exceptional, both in his talent, but also embraced his exceptionalism in terms of difference. And so I use this as a baseline for the entire show to talk about how we as American Jews have grown relative to that moment in 1965. And so the episode features Sandy Koufax, but when you listen to it, it's not really about Sandy Koufax. It's about, it's about us and how we've sort of um, evolved, grown, and integrated in society, and the challenges that we still face. You know, you mentioned that moment in the last World Series. The clip exists in the MLB video library. And I talk about like how, you know, usually when you go to the video library on MLB.com, it's like huge home runs or acrobatic catches. But this is the most benign play ever, but it exists for nerds like us to be able to share in that one moment on Twitter, but also in perpetuity. It's like, it'll show up in pub quiz and we'll know the answer and we'll feel good about it, you know? Um, But other episodes of the season, the next episode actually next week is one that I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, I interviewed Tamir Goodman. He lives in Israel uh, now with five kids and a dog and his wife. And if, for those who don't remember, Tamir Goodman became famous at the end of the 1990s because your former stomping ground, Sports Illustrated, picked up on the idea that he was Jewish Jordan. So he was this um, Orthodox Jewish kid from the Maryland or from the Baltimore, Maryland suburbs who started getting a lot of attention for being a great basketball player, but also being observantly Jewish and sitting on the on Shabbat and he went through this very open recruiting process with the university of Maryland. And ultimately he and Gary Williams couldn't really negotiate terms for him to play in the ACC because Tamir would not play on the Sabbath. And I thought about this story because I remember, you know, I'm a few years younger than Tamir and I remember, you know, like this being a huge deal. And it was such a fascinating time in sports because the internet was on the rise. We were a few years away from LeBron James playing the first televised high school basketball game uh, in ESPN's history. And how we consumed sports, the pressure that we put on kids was changing and it was changing so rapidly. And so the episode is about him, but it's also about how the media covered him, how college athletics changed and what it did to a real person who never asked to be Jewish Jordan, but we made him into Jewish Jordan. And he was, I've interviewed a lot of people, right? I've interviewed United States senators. Uh, as I mentioned, I used to regularly uh, interview Coach you, K. Yikes. I know, I, <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment. Tamir Goodman was honestly one of the most interesting and genuine people I've ever had the opportunity to talk to. And instead of taking on a, where are they now approach to his story? I instead tried to reconstruct whether or not we got the story right in the first place and how we fundamentally understood his choices and whether we misunderstood them. And I don't want to spoil it, but it's a really beautiful an emotional episode and 
you know, I haven't finished writing the the last few episodes of this eight episode run, but I'm not sure there's an episode that I'll be prouder of than the one that airs um, next week on the 19th. Great. Yeah, I love that. Make try to I also I also make fun of the Mets. Episode 3 is the Mets and it's 40 years in the desert and it's it feels like maybe it's too soon but maybe it'll also feel like communal. Like this congregation will be able to like join each other in in their pure Metsdom. Right. Don't do it too much cuz uh, producer Patrick Antonetti is a big Met fan so we don't want he we, we don't want him to play uh, games with your uh with your audio, you know. Oh, I, I mean, it, I, it is actually like, it's also a love letter. You know, I grew up a White Sox fan in Chicago, which makes me understand what it's like to be a second class sports fan in your own city. And so I've always had a sp- soft spot for the Mets. Um, I also randomly, when I was growing up, really loved Robin Ventura. So uh, <laughs> the Grand Slam single uh, many, many years ago was something that I appreciated, which is weird because I feel like most people just appreciate him as the guy who was beat up by Nolan Ryan. He was a great White Sox. Um, Anywho, I, I wanted this Mets episode to feel right for Mets fans because I feel like it's such a unique community and Mets fans love being understood by other Mets fans. So I took great care to try to prove why the Mets are the most Jewish team in all of sports. Uh, I just, I mean, given also, you know, playing Queens, I mean, there's a lot there. All right. So one of the things that you, um, you, I think clearly, I mean, I think the podcast itself will probably focus on this in some ways in almost every episode. And that's, um, the relationship of sports and assimilation, Mm -hmm. uh, for Jews in America and how sort of the importance of sports to assimilate. You know, one of the things for me, um, and clearly like that is the case, I think for, uh, certain ethnicities, but I feel like sports is one of the, maybe it's the only thing where like that assimilation like crosses over to every, um, could cross over to, uh, like just most entities. Like if I'll, I'll give you an example, like if you are anywhere in this world and you're talking to like a, like a, the equivalent of a taxi driver, right? Mm-hmm. You can actually probably find some kind of common ground in sports. Usually you should talk about soccer if you're out of the United States, cause they'll, connect with that so i feel like it is sports to me has always been a place where like someone who is new somewhere or someone who feels like an other or an outsider can find ways to connect and it seems to me that you'll be exploring that right because like even if they turned out not to be uh you know an nba first team all-star there are so many american jews who find themselves in the sports uh landscape you know like Mm -hmm. sort of the like sports sports writ large, and if they're not in the business of sports, so many of them are massive fans of sports in some way. So assimilate, right? Like sports is a massive factor in the assimilation of American Jews into the American uh, culture, right? Into the American story. Absolutely. Uh, And that is 100% something that I'm exploring in the show is this idea that sports provide a built-in community, right? In whatever city you live in, sports and being a fan of a team creates an avenue for connection and for understanding. And this happens at a micro level and it happens at a macro level, right? You had mentioned, you know, you can travel across the world and talk about sports. I didn't do a ton of world traveling when I was growing up, but I remember you would leave Chicago and I was born in 87, right? So I would leave Chicago in the nineties and you'd be like, oh, you're from Chicago. And the first thing anyone would say to you is Michael Jordan. And there was something so (laughs) universal about that. But I also remember like, being on the it's sitting in the back of the bus in fourth grade and knowing that like the one thing I could talk about with people was like the bulls jazz game from the night before. And that was a way that I could connect with people being like an eight year old that, you know, was mostly interested in other things too. And watching meet the press and most like, you know, 10 year old boys don't want to talk about that at the back of the bus. Um, but it's sports is so powerful in that way because you're right. It creates avenues for professions and careers that don't actually involve playing the game. And I have an entire episode exploring this, right? The idea of, you know, Moneyball and Theo Epstein being hired by the Red Sox within months of each other. Moneyball being the Michael Lewis book about the Oakland A's and uh, the transformation of how we build baseball teams based on statistics versus scouts. Uh, And like just the entire like generation of like math nerds who found a place 
in sports as a result of the convergence of those two things. But also, of course, there are a lot of Jewish journalists. Uh, and I, I talked to them for the show and I loved being able to ask them like how their Judaism shaped their view of their career, whether it was this family inheritance and this bond that they had with their parents or their grandparents, uh, or if it was anything else, um, in terms of like how they connected with their friends or even we have a bar mitzvah episode, right? Like if you live in a place where there aren't that many Jews, but you have a sports themed bar mitzvah, it is a very convenient entry point for people to walk into the door of something that they might not be familiar with. So this was really interesting to me. Um, and so Jason Romano is someone I know for a long, long time. He's a former ESPN producer, and he now, um, on top of some of his other editing uh, jobs here, he hosts a podcast called Sports Spectrum, mm -hmm. which is an interview-driven podcast that features story on the intersection of faith and sport. Okay. He's a born-again Christian, and most of the people he has had on um, are, you know, believe in... Um, Christ and their uh, I, I, I haven't listened to every episode so yeah I don't want to I don't want to tag like they are only you know followers of this Christianity and not this Christianity but in general like this is the, the the podcast that he does it's about the intersection of faith and sports and a lot of Christian athletes on it to me one of the things that and, and I'm not someone who goes out I'll be very blunt married who goes out to listen to religious based podcasts even if they're in sports it's just sort yeah. of not my bailiwick but the the and I, he's been on this podcast before to talk about this. The thing that I was like so impressed by was he in the crowded podcast space. He found something that essentially no one else was doing. And since he has started this, they have like four million downloads. It's a very popular podcast. I think it makes money. And on top of the fact that you know I have a long respect for your work, when I saw you were doing this, I instantly thought of Jason Romano because I was like, th there's this does not exist in the podcast space what she's trying to do. And anybody, in my opinion, who comes up with a any kind of sports-related idea uh, in the audio space that has not been done, to me, has a shot to break through. I, I have no idea what your podcast <laughs> run will eventually do, but that is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was like, no one is doing this, and that's really, really interesting to me. So this is my long filibuster to ask you, when you were looking at the market, like, yeah. was that a factor? And did you want to try to do something where no one else is doing what you're doing? And even if, quote unquote, the audience is smaller than if you were going to talk about Russell Wilson and Josh Allen, you know what I'm saying? You are doing something yeah. unique that literally no one else is doing. Um, so that's a really great question. And first of all, I, I want to say thank you first, because I think a lot of what was embedded there was a really big compliment. And I'm not great is, at taking totally. compliments, but I'm going to yeah, take no, this no, one. Most, most writers and aren't, but you should take this one. I, I have a few answers for this. First of all, I'm not, I don't purport to be an expert on Judaism. I mean, I went to Hebrew school and I was bat mitzvahed and it's been really fascinating to do this show because I've actually talked to people for whom God is much more present in their sports trajectory. I mean, obviously Tamir Goodman is Orthodox Jewish, but I've talked to two other Orthodox Jews, one who's a reporter uh, and one who is in the front office and they so genuinely connect their faith in a spiritual way and not just a cultural way uh, to their work and to sports. And that's the interesting thing about Judaism, right? There are people who are really devoutly Jewish in a religious spiritual way. But I think because we've been a minority in America, there's also this cultural element to Judaism. So I tried to challenge myself to be someone who is inclusive about what it means to be Jewish, because if I'm going to take on this challenge, of exploring what it means to be Jewish in America, it has to encompass the multitudes. It has to encompass the intersection with actual religiosity. It has to encompass the intersections of potentially what it means to be black in America and Jewish in America. There are a lot of these challenging stories that I wanted to take on, and I knew that I could do it in a unique way, and I hoped that people would be interested in it if they were sort of interested in American culture or sports, sports culture or Jewish culture, that there would be enough engaging content where you could come to it with an interest in any one of those things and walk away feeling like you had used 30 minutes of your time in a really productive and thought provo provoking way. But there's one last piece to this. 
And it's more personal than that. And I talk about it in the show. Like I'm present in the show. I haven't divorced myself as the narrator. And one of the things that I talk about is that, you know, I'm in an interfaith marriage and I have a toddler. And back in 2019, when I was dating my now husband, and we talked about what our lives could look like, uh, I sat in a bar called Stoney's uh, in Logan Circle in DC, and we executed the great trade of our lives, which is I told my husband I knew the Atlanta Braves were the most important thing to him, and raising a Jewish kid would be really important to me and my family. So I made this trade. I said, if we get married and have a kid, I will like, let's raise a Jewish Braves fan under the condition that I will never call any Northern Jewish child of mine chipper. Uh, but that was, but that was the trade. And um, Carter's a toddler. Now he was born at a really difficult and challenging time in the world for everyone. Yeah. And especially for Jews. And one of the ways I've talked about this show is that, you know, one day he might find it like an old box in an attic and he might understand those choices that we tried to encourage him to make. He might understand what it means to be Jewish in America, why he became this sports nerd who was destined to a lifetime of misery of watching his teams lose over and over again. Uh, and he might feel pride in all of those decisions that we tried to make and the people we tried to be and the people he, we wanted him to be. And so the audience for this show is so wide in my view but it is also really narrow because I, I have this one person in mind and I don't know who that person is going to be, but I'm really hopeful that he'll be a person who's curious and righteous and that one day maybe he'll listen to this and it'll connect with him. Yeah, that's great. The last question I have for you, uh, and it's a little bit away from this podcast, yeah. you're a unique person to answer it. Oh gosh. You, okay. Um, so you know, and this is, just has to do with your career. Yeah. You you, you were based in Washington for mm -hmm. a while, and you, like you said, you've interviewed the high. I don't know if you've interviewed the president, but you certainly. I've been not, in the Oval Office. I okay, you know so I would I would do pool duty, and I would like have to be the representative for the entire free right. press in the Oval okay, Office so with Barack Obama. So the point is right. Mm -hmm. So you you have been in the the highest corridors of power in in Washington. You've yeah. interviewed these people. You're now doing obviously um, a sports podcast that mm -hmm. uh, examines the intersection of sports and American Jewish culture. One of the things, and I'm someone who I'm very interested in reading politics. I find it really really uh, interesting, and particularly more interesting so since I moved to Canada and I, I have a little bit of an outsider perspective now as an American in another country. One of the things that I think is very clear, this is not a unique uh, um, opinion by me, is we have seen more and more news coverage become more like sports coverage. The obsession with horse race, the obsession with very um, short bite-sized content that almost like plays like a debate show on ESPN or a part in the interruption. And I wonder from your perspective, I don't really have a question for you. I just would love you to just sort of rift that I don't want to romanticize it and say like, you know, back in the day, everything was about policy and everything was about um, depth of stories. And those things still exist there. But man, like there is not a day that goes by, particularly on cable television, where I don't turn on one of the cable TV networks. And it seriously feels like I could be watching ESPN or FS1. The content I mean, is different. We're but talking literally right the now and Stephen A was on Hannity this week. Um, right. So, there's so a, that's a real intersection. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like literally the, the content is different, but the format and how it is presented to you is the same which I would say is not very good for society, but no. I am curious to see how you, you feel about because you literally oh, were, you were in those I, rooms. So I love this question. I love this topic. I think about it all the time. And the starting place that I want to actually take in terms of answering your question is that um, a few years ago, I wrote an obituary in Old Deadspin for Leanne Schreiber, who had been the ombudsman, the best ombudsman um, yeah. for ESPN. And you, you shared it, which... Um, being able to write that obituary was one of the great honors of my life because she was a hero to me and her writing came at a really formative time. Uh, I was in college when she had her uh, reign or tenure as the ESPN ombudsman. And I think the way that she covered ESPN was incredibly important because all of those things that you talk about, the debate, the fight, the point scoring, that is, that is something that was the product of corporate interests 
in sports and sports media. And the questions that she tackled and the way that she tackled them was so important because she fundamentally asked the question, can ESPN exist as a news entity when they also have these multi-billion dollar contracts with leagues, when they're incentivized to get viewers, when their profit model is actually divorced from this like honest reporting. And she, I'm like, I'm underselling it, her probably her entire uh, canon as ombudsman. But all of those questions were so important. And the things that she said and how she said them really presaged what we're seeing in political media today. And, you know, there are so many structural issues with the political media. I'm a person who, uh, you know, I did, I did a seminar at the University of Chicago, I was invited by the Institute of Politics, uh, by one of the fellows there. And, um, you know, the, the topic was, is the media liberal? And the, the way that I blow students' mind is that my position is that the media is conservative. And that exists for a lot of structural reasons, but oftentimes it exists because the media is tied to the idea of promoting the status quo. There are all of these rules that no longer work for political coverage, and those rules were created by Ivy League-educated white dudes who had never had an experience in their life that diverged from the norm that they created for themselves. I've had life experiences that people would consider biased, and I've written about them, um, honestly. And of course they are biased, but also this like white privilege heteronormative space is also bias. It's just that those people have the power to decide what looks like bias and what doesn't. And so when you're seeing some of these battles at the New York Times with their younger writers of color, when you're seeing battles at a place like the Washington Post, where Felicia Somnes should still be a journalist there and isn't, these are really big challenges. And for people who don't pay attention to the media, they might seem like small fights or personnel issues, but they're actually foundational to how we understand our own country. And there is nothing I believe more strongly in than a free press and the role of the media in actually doing a public service. And part of the reason I left was that back in 2016, when I did leave, I felt very disillusioned by it. It was before it was before Donald Trump was elected. I mean, I had a really cursed tweet that sometimes resurfaces where in January uh, 2016, I posted what if what if 2016 is the year that Donald Trump wins the White House and the Cubs win the World Series? Uh, so sorry, guys. Sorry about that. Um, but all of these questions are really big and we should care more about them. And we should we should actually like have a civic infrastructure that creates a sense of understanding on how to consume news. But these layered failures, they're leaving us in a really bad spot. And it's something I think about probably too much. Um, and you know, I think your point is well taken and I think that it's right. And I think it all has to do with like corporate interests in media. I appreciate your, uh, your answering that. Thank you. Meredith Shiner is a, uh, as she says here, recovering national political reporter. and strong believer in public editors is also on my Twitter bio. And this actually connects to like the conversation we just had the New York times as an institution, one of the most powerful news institutions in the world should have a public editor to explain their coverage. She is a freelance writer and a communication strategist and lecturer in public policy at the University of Chicago. But for the purposes of this podcast, the host of the franchise, a limited series podcast, as she said, eight episodes, which uh, will explore the intersection of sports and American Jewish culture. Episode one is out. So again, uh, that is the franchise. Google that if you want to... Uh, uh, hear the entire run. Obviously, subscribe wherever you get your podcast between Apple and Google and Stitcher, et cetera. And Meredith, again, I'm really glad you came on. Um, hopefully, at least this interview now, you know, if you're going to do future interviews about what you're doing, you sort of now sort of, um, uh, I know I'm one of your early ones here. So you get to sort of think about how you want to answer these questions, which is always a good thing as more people ask you. But uh, I wasn't bullshitting you. Like, just like Jason Romano, you, 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 ha you are doing something I have never seen before in the space. At least in a, uh, you know, in a, uh, uh, at a place that has a little bit of distribution juice. So I wish you nothing but the best of luck. I Thank really you. think uh, what you're doing is interesting, and personally, I think it's appealing to people uh, of all faiths. You don't have to be Jewish, I think, to uh, um, to uh, appreciate the uh, the content that's on your podcast. So thanks uh, very much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. 
All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chad and Meredith for their time and insight. Uh, we got Jim Miller coming up later this week, so you should uh, you should enjoy that. If you like these kind of conversations, please leave us a five star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast uh, continues. I'm always happy to read uh, the um, read the uh, great feedback on air. So let me give a shout out to a listener who uh, left an Apple uh, review under dry hyphen wit. D-R-Y underscore, I should say, not hyphen, W-I-T. And he said some great uh, uh, comments about our recent Bob Costas podcast. Um, and, uh, and so thank you for uh, that. And you're right, Costas had, uh, uh, has had a great career. And, uh, and like you, I enjoyed his conversations on later as well. Again, you know, as I mentioned, uh, um, we had a long conversation with Bob Costas. We've done a lot of stuff on this podcast on sports media coverage of Brett Favre and uh, Mississippi's welfare scandal, including uh, Shalise Manzi-Young, A.J. Perez, and Anna Wolf of Mississippi Today, who has uh, been doing incredible work. A lot of uh, NFL stuff over the last couple of weeks, including uh, Fred Gidelli and Pierre Moussa, Thursday Night Football's uh, uh, Prime Video's executive producer and director, as well as NFL producer Richie Zients and NFL director Rich Russo, their Fox's top director and uh, if you like television production there's uh, some good stuff for those interviews thanks uh, to everybody at Cadence 13 for all their support thank you to Patrick Antonetti for all your hard work and mostly thank you for listening we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast